One of the most mysterious elements of Yom Kippur is the scapegoat. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who did all the work in the temple on Yom Kippur, he took two identical goats, he did a lottery, one is offered as a sacrifice for God in the temple, in the loftiest, holiest place in the world, and the other goat, the identical other goat, upon which the lottery fell to go la'azazel, that's the scapegoat, all the sins of the Jewish people are placed upon this poor goat. It is transported outside of Jerusalem. It's taken to the barren desert and it is chucked off of a cliff. This is described in scripture. This is a major central part of the Yom Kippur services when the temple was extant. Today, of course, as of this recording, we don't have a temple. But even today, in the Yom Kippur prayers, in the Musaf prayers, which goes through all of what the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, did on Yom Kippur, the scapegoat, those two identical goats with very different destinies, play a major part. And as we are a couple days away from Yom Kippur, and we're all preparing for this holy day, I thought it would be interesting and helpful and productive to explore this strange and maybe we could say baffling process and ceremony and ritual, learn about it. What is the secret of the scapegoat? What is the lesson for us? What can we discover about this strange ritual? And I think once we understand it, and we look through what the commentaries and the sages tell us, we will, please God, discover insights that get to the very heart of what Yom Kippur is all about and what it is supposed to effectuate within us. So let's start with the source. The source in the Torah is found in Leviticus chapter 16. The whole chapter really is dedicated to what happens in the temple, in the tabernacle, on Yom Kippur. And we read in verse 5, that's where it starts, the Jewish people... They bring two seireizim, two male goats. And of course, there are other sacrifices as well. And the Kohen Gadol takes these two goats and places them before Hashem in the tent of meeting. And then Aaron, the high priest, he places upon these two goats lots. He makes a lottery. Echad la Hashem, one for Hashem, ve'echad la Azazel, and one for Azazel. And then Aaron takes the one goat upon which the lottery fell, that it should be for God la Hashem, and brings him as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice, a sin offering in the temple. What about the second goat, the one for Azazel? So the verse continues. Vahasair and the goat, upon which the lottery fell that it should go Lazazo, it remains alive. It's standing, it's waiting for its moment when it will be sent Lazazel Hamidbara to Azazel to the desert, to the wilderness. The scapegoat is gonna await its destiny. 
While the Kohen Gadol does all kinds of other ser- uh, services. So there's the, the bull sin offering and there's the incense in the Holy of Holies and the sprinkling of the blood and the, the goat sin offering and the sprinkling of its blood. A lot of things that the Kohen Gadol does on Yom Kippur. And then in verse 21 and 22, we read what happens to the scapegoat. Aaron, or the Kohen Gadol, places his two hands upon the goat's head and he confesses for all the sins of the Jewish people, all the willful sins, all the accidental sins, all the iniquities, and he takes all those sins and places them upon this goat. Then he takes the goat and he sends it in the hands, in the custodianship of Ish Eti, a person which Eti, everyone figures out what that, what that means. It means, according to Rashi, it means designated or maybe there are other interpretations. But someone takes this goat and travels with it, Hamidbara, to the desert. And this goat shall carry upon it all the sins of the Jewish people. El Eretz Gezeira, to some distant, barren wasteland. And they shall send the goat to the wilderness. Now, what do they actually do with this goat? So the Mishnah in the book of Yoma, which is the book of Mishnah dedicated to what happens on Yom Kippur, chapter 6, we read, we have these two goats, and the ideal mitzvah would be that they should be identical, the same appearance, the same height, the same price, and you buy them at once. And we read all the details about these two goats, what happens, for example, if one of them dies, what's the identity of the transporter of the scapegoat, the Ish-Iti? Who is the one who takes it to this faraway place? Is he a Kohen? Maybe even an Israelite? There is an interesting comment by the Chistuni from the Midrash. The word Ish-Iti, so we said it means a designated person. The Midrash says something else. Iti comes from the word eight, which means his time, someone whose time has arrived. And that's referring to someone who is going to die in this upcoming year. Because whoever was designated to carry this scapegoat out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, to this faraway place, to this barren wasteland, that person wouldn't make it out of the year alive. And therefore they would find someone who was destined to die anyhow. And that person would be the one who would have the important task of taking this animal, bringing it to the wilderness, and processing it as per the law. How would they know who would die? So he adds another interesting thing. They're about to know via clairvoyant methods who would not survive the year. Okay. So we have this goat. It's an identical goat to the other goat. And it's being transported by this Ish-Iti to the wilderness. Along the way, they have 10 stations where the man who was carrying the goat would check in on his way. And the Mishnah tells us that there was a ramp that they would take to leave Jerusalem. Because people would tease him, people would bother him, people would harass him along the way. And you would have some precious Jerusalemites 
who would accompany him to the first station, and there were 10 stations, and in each station, they would offer this individual food, even though it's Yom Kippur, you're not supposed to eat, it's fast day. But nevertheless, counterintuitively, they believed, and we know that to be true even today, if someone has the ability to eat, that gives them the strength to fast. So they would offer him food, but really in order that he would reject it, and that would give him a little boost. Okay, I can have the food if I want it, but you know what? I could probably do it a little bit further, go to the next station, to the next station. After 10 stations, he would be near the appropriate place. And he would go to the cliff. And there was a string of red wool, of crimson wool on the head of the goat. It was tied by the high priest while it was still in the temple. And this Ish-Iti, this transporter, would remove that crimson thread of wool, divide it in half. Half of it he would tie to a stone nearby. Half of it he would tie between the two horns of this scapegoat. He would approach the cliff. He would push it off the cliff. And the goat would tumble down the rocky cliffside. And it would start to dismember. And it would get even halfway down the mountain and was already just a bunch of disjointed, dismembered limbs. Of course, it would die. And that was the scapegoat. Now, in the temple back in Jerusalem, they were monitoring the progress remotely, not with a drone, not with a satellite camera, but they had a divine sign. Because in Jerusalem, in the temple, there was also a red string. And once this process was done, once this scapegoat was chucked into the wilderness, that red string would miraculously turn white to symbolize the sins of the Jewish people have been cleansed. That red, fiery judgment has been whitened, has been removed. The sins have been expiated. Is this the most mysterious ceremony in the whole Torah? If it's not, it's certainly one of them. What do we make of this very strange process done each Yom Kippur? We have the identical goats, this random selection, this random lottery. There's a box. Inside there are two small pieces, initially of, of wood. Later on, it was made out of gold. One of them said, La Hashem. One of them said, La Zazel. Incidentally, we're told by our sages that during the reign of Shimon HaTzadek, Shimon the Righteous, who was the high priest, for 80 years, when they would randomly select the lots, the one on the right hand, the dominant one, would always be La Hashem. And the one on the left, the weaker one, would be La Azazel. But we have this very unusual process, this lottery selection. One of these goats is going to be offered to God with the highest distinction possible. And one is for the Azazel chucked off a cliff in the desert, careening down the mountain, dismembering halfway down the mountain, but turning this crimson thread white, signaling the purification of the nation from their sins. 
such a baffling ritual, ceremony, procedure. It was done for centuries, each Yom Kippur. And even today, it's a central part of the Musaf prayers on Yom Kippur. When we go through the Kohen Gadol High Priest's service in the temple, what can we make of this? What are the lessons that we can glean to enhance our understanding of Yom Kippur? If it's still part of our Yom Kippur, it means it's there to reveal to us some critical insights about what this day is all about and what we are trying to accomplish on this day. So, of course, the first place to start is the Talmud. The Talmud talks about it. The Talmud, the book of Yoma, page 67b, it's talking about a category of mitzvahs called chutim, statutes, decrees. Says the Talmud, there are mitzvahs that are decrees, that don't make sense to us, that are beyond human understanding. Like, why are certain animals, we eat their flesh, and other animals, we cannot eat their meat? And why is it okay to wear a linen garment, and it's okay to wear a wool garment? But somehow, when you mix those two, it's shotness, and that garment you cannot wear. Of course, we have the, the red heifer, which is always the paradigmatic example of a mitzvah that is beyond human understanding. In this list, it tells us Seir HaMishtaleach, the Seir, the goat that is sent away, the Seir, the goat, La'azazel. This, our sages describe in the Talmud, is one of the mitzvos that Hashem gives it to us. And he says, I understand it, but you don't have the permission to question it. Even if ultimately, no matter how hard you ponder, and how deeply you probe, you don't understand it, you have to do it anyhow, because this is the will of the Almighty. So, of course, that's the baseline of our understanding of this. It's a chok, it's a statute, it's a decree, and we have no rights to quibble with it. That said, throughout the centuries and millennia, The sages, in fact, offered explanations and rationales and constructs for the scapegoat. And by the way, if it's not obvious yet, this is the origin of the term scapegoat. This goat, with no fault of its own, it was a lottery, it was random, becomes the bearer of all the sins of the Jewish people, and it is shoved off a cliff for its troubles, thereby expiating the entire nation. Now, our sages say some incredible things. And we'll start with the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra, again, in chapter 16 of Leviticus, he says, well, this is a secret. And it's a secret that I cannot reveal to you. Sorry, you're just not eligible. But he actually adds some interesting color to it. He says, if you understand the word Azazel, it's a very unusual sounding word, right? If you understand the secret of this word, you'll understand the secret of the scapegoat. And there are other words in scripture that could maybe give you an insight 
into this secret. And I will reveal to you a little bit of the secret with the following hint. When you'll be 33 years old, then you'll understand it. Boom. He drops the bomb. It's a secret. Understand the secret. If you understand the word Azazel, and you can look elsewhere in Scripture to find out some pieces of this puzzle. Oh, I'll give you a little hint to understand the secret to decrypt this riddle. When you are 33, you will understand it. Again, total mystery, a total enigma, the Ibn Ezra. Now the Ramban, as he often does, he quotes the Ibn Ezra. And he says, the Ibn Ezra, he is very faithful. He is acting with tremendous fidelity. He is concealing the matter. But I'm like a gossip monderer. I'm going to reveal the secret to you. I'll give you some insight. I'll explain some of this grand mystery. The secret of the scapegoat. And what he says is very Kabbalistic. But he argues that, well, it's rooted in many places in the Midrash and elsewhere. So I'll give you some insight. I'll give you some understanding in this secret. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to read this from Ban. Well, not the whole thing, but the critical parts. And then we're going to try to understand what he's actually saying. And we'll have, I think, at the end, two very clear and interesting ways that we understand the secret, but also two approaches to make our Yom Kippur way more meaningful and productive. So he starts off by telling us that the word sa'ir, which means, of course, goat. You have sa'ir one, which goes to God, and sa'ir two, which goes to Azazel. Well, that word sa'ir appears elsewhere in Scripture in a very different meaning. Jacob is talking about his twin brother. And he says, how can I impersonate my twin brother, my brother Asaph? He is Ish Sa'ir. He is a hairy man. And I'm not so hairy. And if I go to Isaac and I try to usurp those blessings, he'll feel me and he'll say, well, this, this one's too smooth. This is not Sa'ir. This is not a hairy one. And he'll curse me. Says the Midrash, Two brothers, two twins, Jacob, Asaph. They're the Seir one and Seir two. They're like those two identical goats. And one of them belongs to the temple, offered with the greatest distinction by the high priest, the greatest of the Jews, on Yom Kippur, in the temple, just there's no distinction and stature like that. The other one is chucked off a cliff. So that's the introduction that he brings us. And it continues with the second Midrash. This is in Pirkei Durbelezer. And this gets to the heart of what is actually happening with this scapegoat on Yom Kippur. There is a force called the Satan. The Satan. The Satan. 
The Satan is part of this three-headed monster called the Yetzirah, evil inclination, the Satan, and the angel of death. Tom tells us these are three names for the same entity. And these things, these forces, are trying to get us to sin, to repudiate God, to reject God. And the Yetzirah entices us. And the Satan prosecutes us. And the angel of death enacts those punishments, meets out those punishments, kills us. Another name for this three-headed monster is a word that we're not supposed to pronounce. We call it Samach Mem or Uncle Sam. That's the funny nickname. But this is a force. This is the force that they might have created in the world for the purpose of creating tension, of creating a challenge and a conflict, of making our pursuit of perfection and greatness an uphill battle. And the Midrash records a discussion, a dialogue between God and Uncle Sam, the Satan. The Satan tells God, well, I have control over all the nations. But this is, there's one nation, the Jews, that I have no control over. So God says, you know what? Okay, I'll make it fair. I'll give you one day, one day a year, that you have total control over this nation, and that's Yom Kippur. And if you're able to dominate them on Yom Kippur, great. If they are vulnerable, if they are sinful, you could do whatever you want with them on Yom Kippur. But if not, then you can't touch him. And therefore, what happens? On Yom Kippur, when we really are supposed to be in the crosshairs of the Satan, we bribe him. We bribe him. We take one sacrifice and give it to God. And one sacrifice we give to Azazel. We give it, so to speak, to the Satan. And that's the meaning of these two goats going very different directions. One of them to God and one of them to Azazel as a gift, as a tribute, as a bribe to the Satan. Again, this is quoted by Ramban. Very, very mysterious. And when we deliver this goat to the Satan upon this goat, are all the sins of the Jewish people. And once this Uncle Sam, the Satan, this three-headed monster, receives this gift, this tribute, this sacrifice of sorts, he can no longer find any sin, any iniquity amongst the Jewish people. And he must go before God and just acknowledge there's this one nation that's veritable angels. The angels stand while this nation stands. The angels don't eat. This nation's fasting. The angels are totally cleansed of any sin. And the Jewish people are also free of any sin. And there's peace amongst the angels. 
and look at this nation, there's peace amongst them too. And when the Imani hears that, this is the prosecutor, after all. This is the prosecutor. And this is the one day that he has free reign. And what does he say? He says only good things. They're like a nation of angels. Well, then they are totally cleansed of any, of any, of any judgment. And they are expiated and exculpated and purified and refined and emerge from your Kippur without any trace of any judgment and any sin. This is what Ramban tells us about the scapegoat. Totally fascinating, of course, totally baffling. We have the Satan, the Yetzirah, the Angel of Death, the other side, the Sitra Achra, as it's called, Uncle Sam. And this is the force trying to get us to sin and to create barriers and distance between us and God. And the temple of this, so to speak, Satan, well, that's in the wilderness, in the desert, where nothing grows, where nothing can flourish. And on Yom Kippur, it's the one day that it has power, ostensibly. But its power is defanged because we offer it a bribe. In some way, in some capacity, it's like a sacrifice akin to what we offer God. We have these identical goats and somehow that bribe silences the Satan and cleanses us of our sins and we emerge from this experience as purified and cleansed. And the Ramban adds, that's why it has to be a lottery because you cannot offer a sacrifice for anything aside from God. You cannot take an animal and say, I'm giving this to the Satan. What do you mean? You give animals only to God. And therefore, both of these goats are offered for God. And the Almighty says, well, I have a servant, I have an angel, I have a force that I created and I control called the Satan. And I want you to take this part and give it to him. The Almighty, so to speak, this is what Ramban says, accords to his servant the portion that the Almighty wants to appropriate for the Satan. This is the Ramban. And of course, it's a total mystery what is actually happening here. What is the secret behind this bribe? How does it work? How does it silence the Satan? How does all this make any sense? Now, there is an interesting oddity According to this Midrash, the one day that the Satan has free reign is Yom Kippur. The Talmud says the exact opposite. The Talmud says that the gematria of the word Hasatan is 364. Because it only has power for 364 days a year, but on Yom Kippur it is powerless. So it seems like we have completely contradictory sources. On one one hand, we're told that the Satan has power only in this day. On the other hand, we're told the the Satan has power every day but this day. But here's the answer. Every day has theoretical power, but the mind does not allow it to exercise that power upon the Jewish people. And on the one day that the mind does allow it to exercise its power upon the Jewish people, there is this process, the scapegoat process, 
that removes from it the ability to actually prosecute the Jewish people. There's a bribe given to it, and that results in us emerging totally clean and purified. This is the Ramban, and we're going to offer two different ways to understand what's actually happening over here. We're going to start with the comment of the Levush. This is one of the very early sages. And my grandfather, blessed memory, in many places in his writings, would actually quote this because there's a fascinating idea here. And it's so powerful. And it's really so Kabbalistic as well. But my grandfather explained it in a way that it makes sense to simpletons like us. And it gives us a whole new perspective on Yom Kippur and a whole new perspective on repentance and really explains what's actually happening over here. What he says is like this. There is misappropriation. There are things that are external that have come in. And there are things that are internal that were pushed out. What that means, we'll try to explain in a little bit. And therefore, again, this is the Lavush's explanation of this idea of the Ramban. And therefore, we have this process of the identical goats. And the purpose of this process is to arouse the desire to fix the pipelines and to restore things to the way they ought to be. We have a system that's messed up. The internal are external, and the external are internal. Things are warped. And this process is designed to arouse the desire for us to fix things, and to make the internal, internal, and the external, external. What is for Hashem is inside. What is for the Satan is outside. And through this process, the prosecuting angel, the Satan, will get what it deserves outside in a barren wasteland where it belongs. And once things are in their appropriate place, that's when you have equilibrium, you have stability, you have equanimity, and the Satan has been satiated and silenced. When it is in the proper place, in the way that the Almighty intended, it's outside, in the barren, in the desert, in the wasteland. It's not a problem. And against its will, it will be forced to speak of the praise of its enemies. This is the reason of the scapegoat. And what we do down below concludes the Lavush, the inspiration from below, that effectuates everything that happens on high. If we are inspired below to do this, to fix this, to make what's in, in, or what ought to be in, in, and what ought to be out, we push that out, that will affect what happens in the heavens. And he concludes that don't make the mistake that we're offering a sacrifice to the prosecutor itself. No, we only sacrifice to God. 
But this is the understanding of what's supposed to happen here. So again, there's a lot to process here. And I understand that this is a, this is a deep idea. You read the scapegoat, the narrative of a scapegoat. There's no way to understand it in a simplistic fashion. And we go to our sages and they will explain it for us. But we have to acknowledge that this is not something which is very simple. What we have discovered over here, even if we only understand it superficially, is a whole new approach to repentance. To understand where we went wrong and how we fix it. The mistake of our lives, maybe the biggest one, is misappropriation. What should be in is out. What should be out is in. What should be embraced and brought close and adopted and made primary, the mistake is that that was repelled. And what should be repelled and viewed as secondary, tertiary, ancillary, not important, that was brought near. And this is the reason why we can be vulnerable to harsh judgment. Absent this, if everything was in its proper place, the way the Almighty intended, the way the Almighty designed it, everything is properly appropriated. If the things that are supposed to be in are in, and the things that are supposed to be out are out, there would be no grounds for harsh judgment. The only problem is, is that we swapped the pipes. What should be in goes out, and what should be out comes in. The Yitzhahara. The Satan, the angel of death, this Uncle Sam, this Sitra Acha, should be out in the barren desert, in the wasteland. But it's inside of us. It's dominant. It's controlling us. It is guiding our behavior. It is directing our behavior. And Almighty God, the ultimate power, unfortunately, we have a tendency to banish to render as secondary. Everything is upside down. And that's why we sin, and that's why we make blunders, and that's why we live life in a way that does not actualize what, what we're here to do and what we're supposed to accomplish and what our soul really strives for. And that's why we are vulnerable to harsh judgment. And these two goats are coming to fix things to restore things the way they ought to be. To take the forces and properly assign them inside, in the temple, in the inner sanctums, is what is for God. And what goes to the Azazel, what goes to the foreign God, the faux God, the Eitzara that's masquerading as the ultimate power, that is sent to the furthest place. That's the message of this whole ceremony with the two goats, to separate the internal from the external. And this is supposed to inspire a new way to repent. We have to identify what is for God, and that must be brought in. And what is for the foreign God, and that must be cast outside. 
We have to separate and differentiate between the internal and the external. That is what we're trying to do on Yom Kippur. To assign everything to its proper place. Think about what it was like for the spectators in the temple on Yom Kippur. The whole nation is coalesced in the temple and they see two identical goats and the Kohen Gadol makes a lottery. One is for God and one is for Azazel. And the goat that's for God is slaughtered in the temple. And upon the other goat, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, confesses all the sins of the Jewish people upon. And it's given to an Ish-E-T, to a designated person, to bring Azar Jerusalem. And it's thrown off a cliff. And at that moment, the red string hanging on the wall of the temple turns white. And everyone has this tangible realization of this total separation of these two forces. One for God and one for Azazel. And everyone realizes that this is the battle of our lives as well. Within all of us, we have these two forces. And we have to decide what's inside, what's dominant, what's primary, what is really controlling and directing our lives. And what is there but must be very external. What's primary? What's in the driver's seat? And what is there to be used properly in its right time, its right place, for its right purpose, to service God? Remember, God created the Yetzirah, the Satan, the Uncle Sam. It's all a creation of God because it can be used properly. It can serve as a servant of God. But we get uh, those roles reversed. And that's why we have all the problems. Yom Kippur, we learn where these two forces belong. What belongs inside and what must be cast away. Of course, there's a very deep realization here. This is the reason for judgment. If we want to fix judgment, we want to avoid judgment, we want to defame the Satan, well, we just we just fix this. What goes in, what goes out. Ergo, we can also discover this is the root of most, certainly, but perhaps even all of our mistakes. The root of all evil, it's just who's in the driver's seat, who's inside, and who's outside. And all of our mistakes come from us just getting this misappropriation. Taking what is supposed to be in and putting it outside, what's supposed to be out and putting it inside. The critical, the, the important, the vital, the indispensable that must be embraced, we, we take that and put it in the desert. And what is harmful, what is dangerous, if it's not properly channeled, what must be rejected becomes the dominant force of our lives. And this is what Yom Kippur is all about, even for us. Even for us, today, we read about it 
during the Musaf prayers on Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is about assigning everything in our lives in its proper place and setting. What goes in? What ought to go in? What do I find squatting within that I must evict? And what goes out and where it must be cast away to? We're told Torah is life. That is the lifeblood of our soul. This is what we need, like we need oxygen for our body. That must be inside. That must be dominant. And the whole agenda of the Yitzhara, it's, it's barren. It leads to devastation. That must be out. The Yitzhara tov, the good inclination, it's got to be in. The Yitzhara, the evil inclination, that's got to be out. You know, it's the time to fix it. Yes, we give the Yitzhara its due. Where does it belong? It has a place. It has a place. In the empty, barren wasteland, in the desert. In those rocky cliffs, it has a dismembered goat. The rest of us, well, we'll stay inside with God. And my grandfather, blessed memory, he brought some examples of this. The Mishnah tells us, lust, envy, and pursuit of honor remove a person from the world. This is a reference to some of the biggest mistakes we make. We take things that are supposed to be external, we make them internal, we make them primary. Our sages tell us that the Yetzir Tov, the good inclination, is for a person themselves. The Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination, is supposed to be used very selectively for the benefit of others. But what happens? The Yetzir climbs in, makes inroads, makes a little, first a foothold, toehold, beachhead in our soul until it's controlling us. And what happens? We take the agenda of the Yetzirah and we make that our primary goal. Something that's supposed to be outside, used very selectively and mindfully, that becomes the goal of our lives. We have flipped things on their head. Second example. Everyone needs to make a living. But do you live to work or do you work to live? There is a danger where someone, they start working and that becomes their goal. That's what they want, to earn more and more. Not just to feed their family and to provide sustenance for their lives. It becomes their life. Something which is external, supposed to be used, yes. Supposed to be part of the system. It's created by the Almighty. But if that becomes a person's identity and their essence, what's in has been cast outside. And what's out is now in charge inside. We have to separate those two and put everything in the proper place. My grandfather offered a third example. He says, imagine you have a rabbi. And the rabbi has a community. 
And it's important for the rabbi to be honored. Because after all, the honor is really a reflection of the honor of Torah and of the rabbinate. But this rabbi is so worried about his honor and his prestige and his status. And he really develops a taste for power and control and starts to desire honor for its own sake. Until the purpose of this position is cast outside. And the other accoutrements that are there to enhance, to be used properly for the right, for the right reasons, that pursuit of power and control and honor, that becomes internal. Things are in the wrong places. And that's lust, envy, and honor. Remove a person from his world because they switch things away from what they ought to be. And young people, they typically trip up over lust. And middle-aged people, they typically trip up over pursuit of financial greatness. And as people get older, they care more about their honor. In all these instances, people are swapping the internal for the external, and that is the root of all their mistakes. This misappropriation of what's supposed to be in and what is supposed to be out is the cause of perhaps all of our sins and mistakes. And that is what we're trying to fix. That is what the symbolism and the message is of taking what is supposed to be for the Sitra, Akwa, the other side, Uncle Sam, and, and giving him that. That's proper, in his proper context, with the Ishiti, one person traveling to a very distant place and throwing off a cliff. It's supposed to have some sort of role. We're trying to straighten things out. That should not be inside. That should not be the dominant. That should be the secondary, the tertiary, the ancillary, utilized properly, channeled properly, appropriated, assigned its correct location and value, that's the way for us to cleanse ourselves. And that's really the message of Yom Kippur. That is the first explanation of this idea. Again, we're we're working off the verse and the secret of the Ramban and the explanation of the Lavush and the way my grandfather, blessed memory, he would really spell out what's happening here. What, What does this mean? What is the actual lesson for us? And now we can see how this is not just some ancient ritual and ceremony, this gets to the heart of what we're trying to accomplish on Yom Kippur. I want to share a second explanation of the secret of the scapegoat. Another explanation that can resonate with us very deeply. This I heard from one of my teachers, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz. The Talmud tells us that there are two kinds of repentance. There's repentance out of love of God and there's repentance out of fear of God. And both of these repentances work. They both effectuate the cleansing, the purification, the expiation. They both allow those sins to be removed But what happens with those sins is very different. When someone repents out of fear, all those sins are reclassified as accidents. If you do an accident, it's an accident. 
You can't be blamed. You can't be punished for a mistake. Mistakes happen. We're not angels. Someone does a boatload of sins. And yeah, they were, they were willful sins. They were wanton sins. It's a problem. You violated the will of God. But now you repented out of fear. All those sins, that whole boatload, it's just accidents. And accidents happen. You won't be held to task. You won't be punished for those mistakes. But when someone repents out of love of God, they love God and they realize that they really, really love God. And God does so much for them. And how could it be that God gave me so much and I I repaid him like this? And they feel bad, not just because they want to just cleanse themselves, but they feel bad of the, the kinds of rebellion that they did to God. And they want to just restore their love for God. And that's the root of their repentance out of love. Not because of fear of consequence. Love! And because of the love, you want to mend the relationship. The boatload of sins that caused all that separation is not classified into accidents, into mistakes, but into mitzvos. That's what the Talmud tells us. Now, how exactly do, do sins become mitzvos? It's kind of a, a strange thing. Someone did a sin. They violated the will of God. How can that ever be reclassified as a mitzvah? So what our sages tell us is that if you look after the whole process is done, someone, they love God. And one thinks about what God does for us for even two seconds, will realize that the man loves us so much and will develop feelings of appreciation for what God did and does continuously for us. And then you think about how you repaid him. And those sins and those those rebellions and those mutinies against God, you feel so bad about that. It leaves you with such a sour taste. You feel so so traitorous and treacherous for doing this to the Almighty who loved and loves us so much. So ironically, counterintuitively, those sins, they're actually the grounds and the inspiration for the repentance. Because you felt so bad of what you, for what you did, that actually inspired you to fix it and to repent it. And thus when all is said and done, those sins, that whole boatload, actually ultimately contributed towards the bonding of man and God. And therefore, once the repentance out of love is done, and the bond between the human and his or her creator has been restored, what contributed towards that rectification and restoration? It's all those deeds that used to be considered sins but can now be reclassified as mitzvahs because ultimately they contributed towards the unification of man and his creator. That's the mechanism of this process when someone repents out of love because of the relationship 
and what inspire them is actually those sins and, and how bad they feel for what they did. When that process is done, those sins are actually now viewed as mitzvos. Now, who caused those initial sins? If you think about it, someone does a boatload of sins, a hundred million sins. Comes along Yom Kippur, the whole day to bond with our Creator. And if we do it properly, we now have not a hundred million sins, but a hundred million mitzvos. Who do you want to thank for those deeds? Who actually helped you do those now, well, it's now called mitzvos. It's Uncle Sam. It's the Sitra Achra. It's the three-headed monster, the evil inclination. And perhaps this is the reason why we offer a tribute, a bribe. We give him a little bone. It's reminding us that actually the totality of our behavior can result in this other force actually contributing towards our relationship with our Creator. If you do Yom Kippur properly and you repent out of love of God, you should feel a little stirring of a desire to actually be thankful to the evil inclination. I'd never be here without you. Because of what you did to me, ultimately, it gave me the resolve and the determination to pursue perfection, to pursue the rectification of my relationship with the Almighty. And now I want to thank you. Here is your scapegoat. And Robert Berkowitz pointed out, Yom Kippur is called the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. Shabbos Shabboson. Peace of peace. Equanimity, equilibrium of the highest regard. The deepest peace and serenity. That is a reflection of a person kind of being unified. Everything that they did has brought them to this point. When you know that the totality of your behavior, your mitzvahs, and your, what was previously classified as grievous blunders, all that has brought you to this point. And that's really the message of Yom Kippur. Repent out of love. And if you do that properly... You'll want to take an animal and, so to speak, offer it to the person, to the entity, to the thing, to the angel that helped you get here. The verse in Genesis at the end of creation tells us, And God saw all that he had made. Tov Me'od. And behold, it was Tov, which is good, Me'od, exceedingly. It was exceedingly good. 
Says the Midrash, what does it mean, tov be'od, exceedingly good? Tov, ze yetzer tov. Tov, when it says good, it's referring to the yetzer tov, the good inclination. Me'od, very. Exceedingly good? Ze yetzer hara. This is the yetzer hara. This is Uncle Sam. This is the three-headed monster. This is the evil inclination. And of course, the question is obvious. <laughs> it's It's evil. It's bad. It's a bad inclination. Why would you call it not just good, but very, very good? The answer is that when someone, when someone does repentance, that classifies everything as being very good. Everything, meaning the mitzvos that were initially mitzvos. And the new mitzvos that were initially sins, but now they are the best mitzvos possible because those are the mitzvos that helped you get to this point of rectification on its own, in isolation. The Yitzhah it's very bad. It's the evil condition. It's evil. But Vayarachim is kolashas when God sees all that he made, when paired with all the positive things. When you pair all those terrible sins with a desire for goodness, with a desire for a restitution of the cherished relationship with your creator, actually becomes exceedingly good because all those deeds end up being the highest level of a mitzvah. We're on the doorstep of Yom Kippur. Please God, if the temple is rebuilt by the time Yom Kippur comes around, we'll have the Kohen God, the high priest, take two identical goats and do a very strange process. You know, there'll be a lottery. One goat will be assigned La Hashem and offered as a sacrifice in the temple. And a second goat will be La Azazel. And an ish iti, a designated person, will take this goat and bring it outside of Jerusalem and take it to this faraway place in the desert, in the wilderness, to a cliff and throw it off the cliff. And somehow that is connected to the essence of the day, to the purification, to the rectification, to the expiation to the purging of all of our sins. And now we know why. It's a secret. The Ibn Ezra says, you got to be 33 in 33 years, whatever that means. And by the way, they have figured out what he meant. It's a hint in a riddle, in a mystery, in an enigma. But the Rabban says, I'll tell you this, he rested with, with Jacob and his twin brother, Esau, and, and throwing a bone, and this is the one day that the Satan has power. Oh, you think it has power, but it's even a bribe. And then we know that it really gets to the heart of what we're trying to accomplish in this day. We have two paths, really, to understand, really two paths to repentance. We have the Lavush which explains that really all of our mistakes stem from one fatal misappropriation of power. What's in is cast outside. What's out is embraced.
And we're trying to fix it. We're trying to straighten the record. There is a goat for Hashem, and that's inside. And there is a goat. There is a place for everything outside. But once those things are correctly assigned, everything is fixed. And that's a very valuable way for us to think about kind of the the structure of what repentance really is. Just doing what we're supposed to do. Just assigning and according everything its proper place, its proper location in our lives. And then we have a second idea. And that stems from the notion that repentance out of love. And there's no greater day of love than Yom Kippur. The day when the Almighty is closest to us, when the Almighty had many centuries ago, forgiven us completely for our most grievous of sins. The day when the Almighty said, Salachti, I've forgiven. The day that the Torah tells us, lift near Hashem to Torah, you'll, you'll be close to God, and on this day you will be purified. This is the day of love between us and God. And the love can result in us wanting to give a gift, an appreciation for the Sahara. Because if we repent out of love, all those sins can be turned into the most prized and cherished of mitzvahs. But regardless, with these insights, hopefully we'll have a more meaningful a more uplifting, a more productive Yom Kippur. May we all be merit to be cleansed and purified from all of our sins. We should have an easy fast. We should have a productive fast. We should never forget that this is a happy day. I used to think, you know, it's Yom Kippur. It's a sad, morose day. Oh no, it's a terrible day. No, it's the happiest day of the year. It's a day of elevation. It's a day that we're like angels. It's a day that the Almighty is so desirous of forgiving us, of restoring our relationship. If you think about it, it's one of the greatest gifts of all. The day that the Almighty designated for the sealing of our judgment, for the rendering of the ruling of our judgment, It just happens to coincide with a day that he is most forgiven. With a day most auspicious for atonement and for expiation. Yom Kippur is in fact the happiest day of the year. May this be the best Yom Kippur of our lives. May we all merit a Gemara Chasimah Tova the end of the sealing of our judgment should be for good. May we have a, a good year, a productive year, an uplifting year. May it be the best year yet. I thank you for listening from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.